0: Welcome once again to The Richard Roper Show. Welcome to the podcast. I am Richard Roper, and thanks, as always, to everybody who's been listening and providing feedback, and you know the rest of the drill. We appreciate it, guys. Going to talk about uh, some entertainment news on this edition of The Richard Roper Show, uh, some Grammys, fallout, and when Grammys fall out, you know how painful that can be. boom, <laughs> Uh, we're going to talk about the uh, Andrea Riseborough Oscar nomination controversy, which thankfully has now come to a conclusion. Uh, celebrate the 20th anniversary of a friend of mine who has uh, reached that milestone in the talk show arena. And we're going to celebrate Groundhog Day, 30th anniversary of Groundhog Day, which for some reason was not released on Groundhog Day back in 1993, but about a week later. So we're going to talk about that great film and why it continues to uh, resonate after all these years. But first, here's a reminder. The Richard Roper Show is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. The digital landscape is changing rapidly, and to compete in today's online business environment... You need an experienced partner. You know this. Since 1995, AmericanEagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes, offering web design, web development, e-commerce, mobile apps, and digital marketing. Everything you need to drive your overall business's success, because they believe that today's online world is your online opportunity. All right, let's start off with the uh, Andrea Risborough Oscar nomination controversy. We talked about this uh, on a recent podcast, uh, the whole idea that um, because the official Instagram account for the independent movie to Leslie mentioned another actress, Kate Blanchett actually mentioned my own piece in which I mentioned both performances, that this was a violation of the rules and there was this big to do and hubbub and even a brouhaha, if you will. Here's the latest, if you hadn't heard. The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences has said they will not rescind Andrea Riseborough's Oscar nomination. We knew that was never going to happen. But they also announced they'd be conducting a review of campaign procedures in the wake of Riseborough's shock Best Actress nomination, the Board of Governors announced after a scheduled meeting. This is from Variety. Among the most prominent potential campaigning violations was a sense deleted Instagram post from the two Leslie account that quoted an excerpt from Richard Roper's Top 10 Films of the Year, which referenced Riceboro's fellow Best Actress nominee, Kate Blanchett, and Tar. Variety spoke with multiple anonymous and voters over the past week, with the majority agreeing there was really no wrongdoing. The nomination should not be rescinded. That has happened a few times for various violations in the Academy's history, but it's not going to happen this time around. And as I said last time, guys, the whole idea that, by quoting me, in which I said that Kate Blanchett was wonderful, but my favorite performance by an actress was from Andrea Riseborough. And ad quoting that is hardly like negative, terrible uh, slamming of another actor. It's simply just quoting an article in which I compared the two, which, of course, the Oscars do because the whole point of the Oscars is you nominate the five best performances, if you will, and then pick the best of them all. That's what they do at the Oscars. So uh, the good that will come out of this, I hope, is that Andrea Riseborough. I hope she goes to the Oscars. I hope nobody asks her about this on the red carpet because she really had nothing to do with it. And I hope people celebrate her performance. And you know what? And we're going to talk about this uh, in the next couple of weeks anyway, but I'll let you know right now, Kate Blanchett's going to win anyway. You know. But the great thing about this is more people I hope will check out to Leslie, which grossed somewhere around $30,000, you know, almost nobody saw it. And that that's the real uh, injustice here. And of course, with this nomination now, that brings a lot of attention to a terrific film. Okay, now let's talk about the Grammys. The Grammys were the other night. And this is kind of interesting, guys, because almost every time we see stories about television ratings for award shows, the Oscars, the Emmys, the Tonys, the Sags, whatever the case may be, usually it's a downturn. You know, they still do, most of these shows actually do pretty well and sometimes pretty great in the ratings. But the the shorthand in the media coverage is always like, well, they're nowhere near what they used to be. That's because the ratings for no television show other than something like the Super Bowl live sporting events, none of them match what they did even 10 or 15 years ago because there are so many more choices now, guys. But this is pretty cool, actually, and and good for CBS and good for the Grammys. The 65th annual Grammy Awards telecast brought in 12.4 million in total viewers, according to Nielsen's kind of overnight national ratings, making it the most viewed show of the night, the largest for the audience uh, in the last few years. Of course, we had pandemic-related uh, award shows that weren't the full-fledged award shows. We're back to doing the full thing now. Grammys are up 30% from last year's show. And... um, I guess the 2022 ceremony was the first in-person Grammy show following the coronavirus pandemic. So this is the second one. Trevor Noah hosted. I thought he did a great job. Uh, He's a very smart and charming and likable guy who knows, I think how to really navigate the tricky waters of an awards ceremony where it's not about the host. He was very funny, but also made sure we continued to celebrate the music. And as I've mentioned over the years, the Grammys were the first ones to figure this out early on, in terms of the kind of more uh, traditional award shows, that it's really, listen, it's great. But I mean, the categories, there are so many categories in the Grammys, figuring out record of the year and song of the year and artist of the year and production of the year and all this stuff. It's really just this celebration of the music, all different types of genres and a live concert performance, you know, big spectacles. They celebrated the 50th anniversary of hip hop. Some of these hip hoppers uh, have probably had hit replacements by now, but it was still great seeing the, you know, the old school legends and then the, the next generation and sometimes sharing the stage together. A lot of times where, you know, the audience was almost participating, Taylor Swift to be up there, you know, dancing in, in place to somebody else's music. And then you'd then you'd get a country number and then, you know, Stevie Wonder, all this great kind of stuff going on. Of course, you can't really turn the Oscars into a performance because you're not going to go. And now here's Kate Blanchett doing a performance from Tar. So the, the music is a built-in component there, and I think they do a great job with it. Listen, it's not all for me, and I don't think the music there is, not for everyone, different types of music for different types of people, but they really do, I think, a great job. Listen, they bring all the young stars out there, uh, you know, the Harry Styles and the Kendrick Lamars and the Taylor Swifts and, you know, th- that whole generation, but then also the legends as well. Uh, which brings to brings us to the Bonnie Raitt win. So uh, the coveted song of the year, which is one of the big ones, if not the biggest, Bonnie Raitt. And this is from the Daily Mail. I love this. Who is Bonnie Raitt? Shock moment. Blues singer beats Beyonce, Adele, Taylor Swift, Terry Styles, Kendrick Lamar, and more to win the coveted song of the year award at Grammys. Uh, and then this is so funny because they they called her an unknown in some of the stories. And people, some people on Twitter were like, who is this lady who won this Grammy? Yes, it was an upset. But let's let's just keep in mind that Bonnie Raitt has thirteen Grammys, thirty nominations. She's a legend. She writes, she performs. Uh, you know, she's had some huge crossover hits. Uh, so, although it was an upset because not one of the young superstars heard their name called for this, the idea that Bonnie Raitt is an unknown—she's only an unknown if you're not paying attention. Do a little research, folks. So, um, good for Bonnie Raitt. That was pretty cool. People also had a lot of fun with the memes, if you will, of uh, Ben Affleck with Jennifer Lopez. He looked uh, like he wanted to be almost anywhere else most of the time. <laughs> I saw somebody, I, I'm sorry, I can't give credit because it was scrolling through social media, but I did see that someone said um, Ben Affleck looking around wondering where the dropkick Murphys are. <laughs> where the dropkick Murphys? It's my terrible Boston accent, but you know, I don't know Ben Affleck's taste in music. I think it might tend a little more toward Boston rockers like the dropkick Murphys or classic rock. God bless them. You know, who knows what was going on there? We wish him the best. <laughs> People just love showing sad Ben Affleck and pouty Ben Affleck. Listen, leave the guy alone. Wish him the best. Uh, then this is also a uh, kind of a cyclical thing that happens every generation, but, uh, you get the uh, the far right conservatives who were just outraged and offended and beyond shocked because Sam Smith and Kim Petras performed a Satan themed set. And the news stories mentioned the pair made history at the event, music history. Petra becoming becoming the first trans woman to win the Best Pop Duo Group Performance category, along with Smith, the first non binary artist. Good for them. But this Satan themed performance had conservative podcaster Liz Wheeler saying, demons are teaching your kids to worship Satan. I could throw up. Maybe you shouldn't have your kids watching the Grammys at 10 o'clock on a Sunday night. How about that? And also, your kids will be fine. Uh, But then Ted Cruz tweeted, it was pure evil. Uh, You know... (sighs) For as long as there's been music, it's been considered to be evil and a bad influence. From Elvis wiggling his hips uh, to the revolutionary music of the '60s, and you know, we had a lot of that kind of satanic rock, you know, which is bullshit. Most of it, you know, I mean, this this to me was a, a a performance, performance art, and take it for what it is you know, Blue Oyster Cult can do. Don't fear the Reaper. I don't think that necessarily means that the Blue Oyster Cult is trying to get you to come into Satan's world any more than the Rolling Stones were pro-devil when they wrote and performed uh, one of the great rock and roll songs of all time, Sympathy for the Devil, which has been used in about 100 movies and TV shows. So, you know, everybody, relax. Relax. It's not going to be Sam Smith and Kim Petras's performance that's going to get your kids into satanic worship, but it's an easy target for the far right. It always has been to go after, you know, either hip-hop music or, you know, devil worship and saying this is evil and they're recruiting kids and all that bullshit, and it's, it's music. It's entertainment. Judge accordingly. Uh, I also, on another note... Want to uh, congratulate Jimmy Kimmel, who recently celebrated 20 years as a late-night talk show host. I've known Jimmy for a long time; met him right when he was starting his talk show way back in the day. Uh, he was a huge fan of Roger Ebert's, and that's how you know we, Roger and I, did a couple of things with him. There is a if somebody out there can find this for me, this would be the greatest thing. I would love this so much. But Jimmy Kimmel did a primetime holiday special. I want to say around 2005, and it was kind of a takeoff on the old Bob Hope type Christmas specials where, you know, they would kind of the conceit would be some old time entertainer legend would be hosting a Christmas party at his house, clearly a set. And then the doorbell would ring and say, like, hey, the monkeys are here. Why, it's Phyllis Diller has now arrived. And that's how they bring all the guests in. Jimmy Kimmel did a parody of that and had everybody. I can't remember. I know Mike Tyson was on there. uh, And Roger and I, he answered the door at one point. He's like, it's Ebert and Roper. And we all sang a medley of uh, Here Comes Santa Claus, right? Down Santa Claus Lane. I have never seen the show. I remember doing it. I know it's real. And it's listed on IMDb and some of these sites. But if anybody happens to have a copy of that, our Roper at SunTimes dot com is probably the easiest way to get a hold of me or you can uh, contact me through social media. I would love to see a tape of that. Anyway, enough about me. This is about Jimmy Kimmel and Jimmy. Uh, you know, people know he was with Adam Carolla, did the man show. It came up in, in in talk radio, you know, local stuff, doing sports and just kind of just basic Radio and man-oriented, you know, sometimes now well, maybe outdated comedy, but really transformed himself into this late-night host. And at the time, Jimmy Kimmel's sort of like the Conan O'Brien thing with NBC, where people were like, wait a minute, they're going to give this guy, this guy's going to follow in the footsteps, so, uh, you know, the traditions of the Dick Cavett's and Johnny Carson's and Jay Leno's. Uh, David Letterman's of the world and it was an uphill climb and I remember going to a few of the early shows just as a uh, friend of, you know, friend of the show and hanging out backstage and they had this whole bar, a pool table and famously, I think it was the opening night where one of the audience members was throwing up. It was this party. It seemed, you know, kind of, bizarre and uh, Jimmy seemed overwhelmed and they, you know, they had the the running joke, which they still have to this day about bumping Matt Damon. But in the early days of the show, they really had trouble sometimes getting guests for the show. And now, you know, 20 years is an incredible accomplishment. And and Jimmy has done a magnificent job. He works really, really hard. And he's always been a guy who loves show business, but also can be just irreverent enough uh, that to make it funny. And um, it's kind of the last remaining pretty much traditional talk show at late night. I mean, there are tons of shows. A lot of them, you know, Colbert's more into the, the the commentary stuff, which is fantastic. Seth Meyers is really good. Jimmy Fallon is really, the Tonight Show is now a variety show, and that's fine. That's what he does. But Jimmy Kimmel pretty much follows the traditional model that we saw going all the way back to the early days of The Tonight Show and Jack Parr, Steve Allen before him, then Johnny Carson, and then Leno, and even Letterman, who was irreverent and revolutionized things. But, you know, a guy comes out in a suit. Uh, He does a monologue about current events. There's a rotating list of uh, different type of uh, sketches they do. They have some recurring characters. Some of them are, you know, behind-the-scenes people. Some of them are actors playing behind-the-scenes people. And then they bring out a, a guest, maybe a second cast and you finish with a musical performance. That's kind of the blueprint for the traditional talk show. And for Jimmy to have done that for 20 years and counting is a huge accomplishment. Uh, So congratulations. Kudos to Jimmy Kimmel. Uh, Well-deserved all the accolades he got. And there is something cool about there's still room for the old school late night talk show. All right, why don't we take a quick break here, guys, and then we'll uh, talk a little bit about the 30th anniversary of Groundhog Day.
1: But first, let me tell you about Portillo's. It's one of my favorite places to eat on the planet Earth, and that is absolutely true. I'm not making that up. Mm-hmm. I, I, I probably yeah. order from or eat drive through a Portillo's drive through and eat from Portillo's. Hmm. I probably once a week. Probably. I would say and you know why? Because they got the best hot dogs, they got the best Italian beef, they got the best Italian sausage and <laughs> they got great salads, they got great french fries, they got great everything that you want if it's comfort food or uh, what do they call fast casual now, whatever that is. Hmm. You you have got to Stop by Portillo's if you haven't done it yet. And if you live outside of the area in which there are Portillo's, you can order the stuff online. And I always tell you, order the chocolate cake because it's the best chocolate cake you're ever going to have in your life. You can think, well, now how is a fast casual restaurant in Chicago going to make the best chocolate cake I've ever had in my life? Trust me, it is. There are people all over the planet Earth that actually order that cake for their weddings and they build wedding cakes out of the individual chocolate cakes. I'm not making that up. (laughs) Try it. Portillos.com. P-O-R-T-I-L-L-O-S. That's how you spell it. Portillos.com.
2: How do you know I'm not a god? (laughs) Oh, please. How do you know? Because it's not possible. Doris. This is Doris. Her brother-in-law, Carl, owns this diner. She's worked here since she was 17. More than anything else in her life, she wants to see Paris before she dies. Oh, boy, what What are you doing? This is Debbie Kleiser and her fiance, Fred. Do I know you? They're supposed to be getting married this afternoon, but Debbie is having second thoughts. What? Lovely ring. This is Bill. He's been a waiter for three years since he left Penn State and had to get work. He likes the town, he paints toy soldiers, and he's gay. I am. This is Gus. He hates his life here. He wishes he stayed in the Navy. But I could have retired on half pay after 20 years. Excuse me. This is some kind of trick. Well, maybe the real God uses tricks. You know, Maybe he's not omnipotent. He's just been around so long. He knows everything.
0: Okay, there it is. Groundhog Day was released in February of 1993. And according to my St. Jude the Apostle School training in math, that's 30 years. For some reason, they didn't release it on Groundhog Day. But 10 years, 10 days, I'm sorry, 10 days later on, uh, again, doing my math, February 12th, 1993, which is right around the time I hope you're listening to this podcast. Uh, I've written a few pieces through the years about Groundhog Day, which if you haven't seen it, folks, stop listening to this podcast right now and go watch it and come back to me. I'm, I'm sure most of you have uh, kind of some of the fun ironies. When we talk about Groundhog Day, which is the story of somebody who keeps repeating the day over and over again, and the movie itself has a great repeatability factor. We've talked about repeatability on the podcast. Some movies you can watch time and again, and you always find something new to love, and the comedy's great, or sometimes the you know the, the heavy drama words, something like Goodfellas, and then there's other movies which are great, but you don't want to watch over and over again. The Sophie's Choice, The, uh, the Schindler's List, great films like that, but Not something you're going to queue up probably every six months. But Groundhog Day has become the kind of film that people love to revisit every year. When it came out, it was a hit. And it did big money and it got generally good reviews. But over the years, it has become uh, considered a real classic with the American Film Institute ranking it number 34 in a list of the greatest comedies of all time. Uh, a 2014 poll of entertainment industry members in the Hollywood Reporter placed it as number 63, not as the 63rd best comedy of all time, but the 63rd best film of all time. Uh, and there have been, you know, all different types of faiths from Buddhism to Christianity, uh, you name it, have embraced certain elements of it. Uh, I know there have been classes taught in college about the philosophy of Groundhog Day. The self-improvement factor, the self-actualization, the idea that, you know, Phil Connor starts off as this self-absorbed narcissist who's rude and just wants to get the hell out of Punxsutawney. But then, of course, as he lives more and more days, first says, how do I use this to my advantage? How do I use this to get laid? How do I use this to fall in love or get Annie McDonald's reader to fall in love with me? Uh, I'm going to eat everything and smoke everything and rob banks and all this shit. Rob an armored truck, and then as um, as time goes by, he becomes you know a better person and and does better for people and comes to really embrace life. couple of things about uh, Groundhog Day. Uh, one of the one of my favorite scenes is when early on phil sidles up next to rita in the bar and offers to buy her a drink let's listen to that scene right now
2: what are the chances of getting out today
0: the van still won't start larry's working on it wouldn't you know it
2: can i buy you a drink okay jim beam ice water for you miss sweet vermouth and the rocks with a twist please what are the chances of getting out of town today Van van's won't start. Larry's working on it. Oh, wouldn't you know it. Can I buy you a drink? Okay. Uh, sweet vermouth, rocks with a twist, please. For you, miss? The same. That's my favorite drink. Mine, too. It always makes me think of Rome. The way the sun hits the buildings in the afternoon.
0: Well, what should we drink to?
2: I like to say a prayer and drink to world peace.
0: To world peace? World peace. So Phil is a Jim Beam ice and water guy, but he finds out that Rita's favorite drink is sweet vermouth rocks with a twist. So he starts ordering that and then talks about how uh, he likes to say a prayer for world peace because that's what Rita likes to do. So as a tribute to Groundhog Day, folks, I actually tried a sweet vermouth rocks with a twist because you hear that and you're like, what the hell even is that? So I actually went to a bar in Chicago ordered sweet vermouth rocks with a twist, a little twist of uh, lemon. And let me tell you, it's one of the worst things I've ever had in my life. It's so bad. It tastes like medicine from the 19th century must have tasted when some doctor would say, I'll cure everything you've got. Drink this libation. So I have now come to the conclusion that it's not the constant encounters with Ned Ryerson, It's not all the uh, violence that uh, Phil endures. It's the fact that he has to drink sweet vermouth rocks with a twist over and over and over again, Uh, which brings me to another point. People have talked about how long Phil Connors is stuck in the time loop. Now, the original screenplay was by a guy named Danny Rubin, and the screenplay actually had a moment where Phil says, I've lived the same day for 10,000 years. Director Harold Ramis uh, once told the New York Times he thought it was more like 10 years, but then said, you know what? He later amended that to say maybe 30 or 40 years in order to allow enough time for Phil to learn to become proficient at the piano and learn ice sculpting and master French and all of that. There have been some websites that have tried to nail it down to the exact amount of days, but I I think generally speaking, it's probably in the 40-year mark. That's how many times, you know, that's thousands and thousands of days that Phil Connors uh, relived Groundhog Day. I think they show about 30 of those days in, in the movie. Another interesting thing, I mentioned Danny Rubin, who wrote the original screenplay, which of course was just absolutely brilliant, but kind of went in a different direction. And then Harold Ramis shaped it with him and Danny Rubin still got, you know, co-screenwriter credit, which he deserved. It was his story. Uh, his story is really interesting. If you look him up, did a few other movies after that. None of them that made any kind of a splash. And, and he's a really interesting cat and, and comes across as very sympathetic in the profiles you read of him. But uh, basically, Hollywood put him in this pigeonhole. They want him to keep writing Groundhog Day type movies. I don't know what that would be. And every time they wanted him to write kind of a standard rom-com, he would balk at that. So a lot of scripts of his got sold or optioned, but never turned into movies. He never really did anything after Groundhog Day until about five, six years ago where they did a Groundhog Day the musical. And he wrote the book for that, got nominated, I think, for six or seven Tonys, uh, played overseas, they've done revivals, did pretty well. It hasn't become like, you know, Hamilton or anything like that, but kind of an interesting story because he's kind of been in his own Groundhog Day all these years. Uh, but listen, if, if, you're, if your legacy is that you wrote the original Groundhog Day, well, that's pretty awesome. Since Groundhog Day has come out uh, we've seen so many movies and films that were variations on the repeat-the-same-day routine, Christmas Again, Palm Springs, uh, the Natasha Lyonne vehicle, Russian Doll, Happy Death Day, the horror movies, Meet Cute, which we just saw recently with Pete Davidson and Kaylee Cuoco, uh, Boss Level, Source Code, Edge of Tomorrow. And they even, you know, they sort of repeated Groundhog Day in a Jeep. I think it was a Jeep commercial, right, for the Super Bowl a couple of years ago. That doesn't count, though. They did that with Ferris Bueller. Those are standalone. Those are just uh, those are commercials. I kind of like the fact that they never really tried to do another Groundhog Day. There was talk at one point about having the character of Rita stuck in her own time loop. It should remain as it is, a near-perfect movie. Happy anniversary to Groundhog Day. All right, that's going to do it for this edition of The Richard Roper Show. Thanks to everybody, as always, for listening, and we'll talk soon.